The book of 1 John. This morning we want to uh, read the first five verses of 1 John. We're really, uh, this is home stretch now. We're almost done with 1 John. Lord willing, we'll finish here at the end of the month. And then, boy, um, ever since I've been in 1 John, I've, I've just, I kept being drawn back to um, that section in John's gospel, chapters 13 through 17. And it's just kind of like, Oh, I know where John got that. He got that from Jesus, who said that in, in what we call the upper room discourse. And so I, my plan on this moment is then for the summer, we're going to start in chapter 13 of John's gospel and go through 17 of John's gospel. And uh, uh, we'll kind of, in one way, connect the dots to see the things that John's been telling us about. He really did. Like he, like he said, he got those from Jesus, in particular, a lot of that from the upper room discourse. So, But for now... I'm way ahead of myself. For now, chapter 5 of 1 John, verses 1 through 5. These are God's words for us this morning. And here's what our God says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You may be seated. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We know that there's no word like your word. Your word is eternal. It's settled in the heavens. And, 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 and yet, Father, your word is the most pertinent, timely word that we could receive this morning. It is ever true. It is always true. And so, Father, our prayer is that you would help us as we read, as we just read this segment of your word, that you would help us to now see wonderful things. And that in seeing wonderful things about our Lord, that you would literally, by your Spirit, change us. That these would become living realities in our own hearts, and in our own lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A couple of uh, structural markers or structural observations I want to make as we kind of now kind of ease our way into this unit that we've just read. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but interesting how our passage begins and ends. Wonderful bookmarks of sorts once again. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then, and then notice, notice uh, how he wraps up this unit. Um, uh, uh, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So, the passage begins and ends with an affirmation of trust or confidence or belief in Jesus, in Jesus as the Christ 
which reminds us that he is the one who is the perfect final fulfillment of all that the scriptures have been promising concerning God's anointed Messiah, but that also he is the Son of God, that this anointed Messiah who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of of the coming Redeemer, is, is also the one who is divine. He is deity. He is God's very, uh, in this incredibly unique way, he is God's unique son. He is fully God, even as he is fully man. It, it reminds me of the same language uh, that John wrote the gospel account at the end of the gospel account, chapter 20, uh, it, it, when he kind of explains, this is why I wrote this gospel account, uh, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's verse 1 of chapter 5, but this is what he said in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So, so the passage begins and ends with this call and this admonition, this affirmation of belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. But, but another marker that I want us to note here in this uh, passage is the language of new birth. It's mentioned twice in verse 1. Uh, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, has been born of God. Uh, and everyone who loves the Father loves the, one, the ones who have been born of God. And then, uh, and then in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, this is not the first time that John in this letter um, uh, points us to this notion of born of God. He mentioned it in chapter 2, verse 2. He mentioned it in chapter 3, verse 9. He mentions it twice in chapter 3, verse 9. He mentions it uh, in chapter 4, uh, verse 7. And so, and so uh, but, but I've never, I, I've never um, uh, made much of a fuss about that notion in, up to this point. And so this morning, we, really, well, we want to do that. We, we, so I start with just, I want to define a term. What is this thing called born of God? Or, or elsewhere, it speaks of being born from above. Or in, in John chapter 3, the more famous uh, passage that speaks of this notion is born again. Remember when Jesus and Nicodemus were having that conversation in the gospel account of John chapter 3, and Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be, you must be born again. And so all of these terms essentially kind of point to the same reality, born of God, born of, from above, born again. These, these terms speak of the work of God's spirit in which God imparts new spiritual life into us. Uh, a related term is the notion of regeneration. That, that, that is that we are being made new, we've been made new on the inside. And are, are, we've been given new hearts. We're not, we're not perfect yet, and yet we're new. And that results in being, being made new, being dwelt by God's Spirit, being given new hearts that are, are, are literally our natures have changed as a result of God's Spirit working on us. The result is that we see Jesus differently. So everyone who believes, and that's kind of an ongoing present description there, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, in other words, it's kind of a, kind of a past reference, uh, has been born of God. So being, 
having been born of God, the result of that is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. See, that work of regeneration results in what we would call conversion. Our response of faith and repentance, to our response of turning to Christ and trusting only in Him, and, which, and, and turning to Christ has, has been, it's been enabled by that new life that, uh, that change of heart that has been wrought in us by the Spirit of God. We, we don't born ourselves again. The new birth is from God and it is by God, but, but God doesn't trust in Christ for us. We trust in Christ. We wouldn't trust in Christ. We couldn't trust in Christ without being born again, without a work of God's Spirit, and, and, and yet... Thus and thus, as we or when we are born again, the first sign of that is that we trust in Christ gladly, willingly, resolutely. So here's what I want us to think about just briefly this morning. Uh, it's is just two, two points. These two points revolve around this one theme or notion, the new birth enables a response of faith that expresses itself in love. You say, haven't you said that before? Seems like most every Sunday that we've been in John's gospel. No. Because, again, tagging on to what Paul said in Galatians, the only thing that really matters is faith expressing itself in love. What do you and I have, us who name the name of Jesus, what do you and I have if we don't have a confidence in Christ that exhibits itself in love for each other? And so John just keeps pile-driving this matter home to us, and he's back again. And so so since he's back again on the same theme, I'm... I'm stuck. I'm, I got to be back again on the. I, I, I'm stuck gladly, willingly. Uh, we're, we're back on the same theme. And so the two points go like this a visual sign of the new birth and a vital sign of the new birth. I'm going to start with the visible sign of the new birth. Let me just maybe explain some terms here. As I see it, what's the difference between a visible sign and a vital sign? Well, a visible sign is just simply that. It's visible. In other words, it's pretty clear. If you see me running and jumping and stomping, that's, that, that's a visible sign of life, right? Of energy, right? right? You've noticed that. But what you haven't seen is now my vitals. I'm about to stroke. No, I, hopefully I'm not. Yeah. And vital signs are, are really the engine that drives the visible signs, and yet vital signs are a little bit harder to detect. And in fact, in most cases, they require, at least in the physical realm, they require some sort of medical instrument. You've got to, yeah, oh, now I'm out of breath. It, but it, 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 vital signs are like your, um, your breathing rate, your uh, blood pressure, your heart rate, um, your oxygen levels. Um, those are your vitals. And, 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 and so here in this passage, we see something of the vital signs of life. That'll be a second point. And we see something of the visible signs of life. The visible sign of life of the new birth is love. Now, this is where we left off last week. Look at the very end of chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God... 
and hates his brother, he's a liar. And he explains this, for, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so, so where we wrapped up last week is you can't go around saying you love God while you have hatred in your heart for fellow believers. Uh-uh. Now, John's going to take that and he's going to now put the other side of that equation in place here in chapter 5. He starts out with the same equation, only he states it positively. The second part of verse 1, everyone who loves the Father, he says there, um, loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, so negatively, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. Now, positively, everyone who does truly love the Father simultaneously, equally loves everyone else whom the Father loves. Everyone else who the Father is born again. Now, now he introduces the other side of that equation in verse 2. By this, by this, we know that we love the children of God. So he's talking about now not loving the Father, but by loving the children of God. Because he says, if you love the Father, you'll love the children of God. And this is how you know you love the children of God. Now, hang on, because it, it, on the sur- surface, it feels like well, we're just going around in circles here. And we are in a good way. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. Well, so how do we know when we love the children of God? When we love God and keep his commandments. So in a sense, what John has said up to this point, up to the end of chapter 4 and even up to the first part of chapter 5, verse 1, is that we love God. And that's shown by how we love the brothers. And then he comes around in verse 2 and says, and this is how we love the brothers. We love the brothers as we love God, as indicated by our obedience to God's commands. It's a new twist. And yet it's just, everything's full circle here. On the one hand, what this is establishing is we cannot love God without keeping his commandments We cannot love God without loving one another, but also we cannot love one another without loving God and keeping his commandments. So it's covered in both directions. Either way, we cannot pull these things apart and compartmentalize them. They, They are distinct matters, three distinct matters. There's Loving our brothers, there's loving God, and there's obedience to his command. And so there are this three distinct points of conversation, and, 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 yet, and yet all three of these distinct matters are meant to all fit together and not be segmented or augmented or pulled apart. They, they are distinct matters, but they are inseparable. Cannot say we love God without loving our brothers. We cannot say we love our brothers without also loving God. And we can't say we love God without a sense of alertness and compliance to obedience to his will. This is all like a package deal here. Think about this. The world loves to use the term love, just like it loves to use a whole host of God's terms and concepts. It, it likes to use the word justice as well, 
or mercy or grace or love. And, and, yet, and yet these are all God's realities. And so when we use these terms, we have to seek the direction of the one whose terms they belong to, whose concepts they belong to. God gets to define what love is, what love consists of, what love looks like. God gets to define what justice is and what justice consists of and what justice looks like. These are all God's things because this is God's world. I don't get to like walk around willy-nilly and, and up and decide these things on my own. In fact, sometimes we use these terms in a way that just flat out is, is in contradistinction, contradiction to, to God's use of these words. Like the word love, we, we oftentimes use the word love in multiple ways, in multiple settings, and some, some of the ways we use the word love really have nothing whatsoever to do with notions of God's love or biblical love. For instance, so when he's connected, you, you, can't, you can't love each other until you have something about love for God. And love for God is, is, is inseparably expressed by obedience to his commands. Now, now, connect the dots there. You and I, if we are doing something unlawful, we are also doing something unloving. I mean, think about it. Even though it's, and I'll just give one illustration of this. We could go a gazillion ways with this. But even though it is called love, a fling is not about either loving God or loving the person whom you're having a fling with, as well as anybody else in your sphere of responsibilities. Uh, Having a fling is not love at all. It's simply an expression of self-oriented self-gratification. Love is very much about a commitment of will to do the right thing towards someone. The right thing as God reveals it. The right thing not as self-determined. Well, for me, this is what I think would be the loving thing to do. Who are you? Who am I? I'm just a mere creature. The right thing is never self-determined. It is always to be God-defined and God-revealed. So love is very much about a commitment of the will, and yet what, what our passage is also saying when we, when we get to verse 3 is that love is also pertaining to the affections. It, that, and that's brought out in that statement. Do you see it? And, and, and his commandments, the very end of chapter three, of verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. Love is about a commitment of the will. Love is also pertaining to our affections. In other words, this is not to say, and this passage is not saying that, that obedience to God's law is a cinch, that it's, it's easy. Obedience is not always easy. Obedience is often difficult, tough, hard, requires much effort. Requires great resolve and stick to itiveness. And yet, as hard as it might be to love through obedience to God's commands, it is not burdensome because love is that thing which is 
coloring the matter of obedience. Because when you love something, you, you certainly resolve to do the right thing. But when you love someone, you, reserve, you, you resolve to do the right thing with, with, a, with a proper loving disposition, a sense of joy in, in that obedience. It, oh, it, it may be difficult. It, it may require effort. But when you love someone... Silly illustration, and maybe this is even a, uh, a, a quasi-susceptible notion of love, but I love riding my bicycle. But did you realize that riding a bicycle, well, unfortunately, Roger Kohler, Craig Kaler knows this, but uh, riding a bicycle is very difficult, particularly if you are riding up a hill against the wind. That's hard. And it, but as sure as I'm huffing and a puffing and my legs are, are tired and my bottom is sore and my back is hurting, I'm loving the whole thing. I'm saying, thank you, Lord, that I get to be out here on a bicycle doing this. I love doing this. This is not work at all, even though it's a lot of work. You see, that's what, that's what love does. When you, when you and I love someone through the grid of loving God, through the grid of obeying God's commands then doing that which is right toward another person is not a burden because it is all wrapped around a disposition of love. i gotta, I got to go on. i got to move on. Second point, that's, that's the visible sign. We love each other lawfully, gladly lawfully. Second um, is now the vital sign. And, and here in verses 4 and 5, we see something of faith is the vital sign of the new birth. So love is the visible sign of the new birth. How do I know I've been born again? Love the brethren in a glad, lawful way. How, how do I know I've been born again? Well, that's really how the passage begins and ends. How do I know I've been born again? It has something to do in my heart and in my heart response toward Jesus who I affirm to be, who I believe and rely upon being the Christ, the Son of God. And so just a couple of quick observations here from our text concerning the the vital sign of faith as a result of the new birth. It it says some really audacious things here. Uh, For everyone, verse 4, who has been born of God overcomes the world. Hmm. Wow, that's an incredible statement. I think that goes back to something that John was telling us back in chapter 2. I think it goes back to something that Jesus was saying in John 16, where he says, I have overcome the world. Um, And and this is the victory uh, that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The most important aspect of faith, and our text bears this out, the most important um, aspect of faith is its object or its focus. The reason why he would speak of faith here as that thing that overcomes the world is because The faith that he is describing here is a faith whose focus and object is Jesus. You see, faith is really only as good as its object. 
Faith is really only as good as its focus. We all have faith in someone, somewhere, some direction or another. You, we, we might have faith in ourselves, which in, in some sense that's fine. We might have faith in humanity. In some sense that's fine. But faith in ourselves and faith in humanity is not the kind of faith that he's talking about here that overcomes the world. The kind of faith that overcomes the world is a faith whose focus and object is Jesus the Christ the Son of God. Why? Because there ain't nobody, there ain't nothing like Jesus. So faith doesn't have what I would call great intrinsic value. It has wonderful instrumental value. The real issue of faith is not its own greatness, the, the, but, but the greatness of the thing that faith is directed toward. In other words, a little bit of faith in a really big Jesus is infinitely better than a whole truckload of faith in ourselves. Because the real value of faith is it's instrumental. It's, it's what is it faith in? What is its object? What is its focus? It is, it is faith in Jesus in our passage here that matters. It is faith in Jesus that overcomes. That, that, is, that is any and all who even this morning are embracing, trusting in, submitting to, relying upon, following after the Lord Jesus Christ. And why would we do that? Because there ain't nobody, there ain't nothing like him. He alone is the God-man. He alone is the second person of the Godhead who relinquished the exercise of his rights as deity and became a man, took on flesh. He alone became obedient obedient to the point of death. He alone renders a perfect righteousness and obedience to obey his Father in heaven. He alone there is, is qualified to be the only atoning sacrifice for our sins. He alone is the only one who could justly, who could rightly absorb the justice of God and therefore abate the justice of God from us. He alone is the only one qualified to secure us and our salvation. So even this morning, a little bit of faith in this big Jesus qualifies us to overcome the world. Why? Because, as I alluded to a second ago in John 16, Jesus himself says, take heart. I have overcome the world. So how is it that I overcome the world? Well, through the instrument of faith. Well, how is it through the instrument of faith that you and I overcome the world? Because it is faith that joins us to Jesus. And joined to Jesus, we are now linked to Christ, the Son of God. And, and, and now He is our present life, and now He is our future destiny. And so we are overcomers insofar as our focus, the object of our, of our dependence and our reliance is upon the, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that got to do with the visible sign? Well, when we are joined to Jesus through faith, then we are now the kind of people who no longer are plagued with the curse 
of having a fixation on loving the world and the things of this world, which is what he said back in chapter 2 of 1 John. We've been released from such shackles, such pettiness and temporalness. We, we now have overcome the very draw that the world says, look at me, this is something here, this is really something here. We say, that ain't nothing there. We now see something of the beauty and the loveliness of Christ and now be enjoined to Christ just as Christ overcame a love of the world by a greater love for his Father and for his people. We now have that same spirit of Jesus inside of us through faith by the grace of God. And we now are a people who overcome the world as well by the fact that through Jesus the, the charm of this world is now better seen for its fleetingness. And the lasting value and beauty of Jesus is now seen in all of its loveliness. And so we love the Father as well. And we love God's people as well. Because through faith, we are joined to the one who has overcome wrong loves and replace them with proper loves. Father, thank you. Thank you for what the Lord has done and now is doing in us. Thank you, Father, for life, the new birth. Thank you, Father, for therefore enabling us to see and trust in Jesus in such a way that that trust in Jesus now begins to infiltrate how we would love you and love each other and obey you. Oh, Father, guard us. Guard us from thinking that we could separate these things, that we could say we love you and not love our brothers, or that we love our brothers and really not love you, or that we say we love you and care less about your commands. But, Father, make us whole. Make us a people who... Love the brethren because we love you by loving your commands. So, Father, we look to you. He who began this good work in us by giving us the new birth, Father, we are confident that you will complete that work. And that is our hope. That is our desire. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.